Welcome to Something Crunchy. Tyler is homies with Blake. Blake is the older bro of Blair. Blair is married to Tyler and is a slutty slut slut. Welcome to Something Crunchy. What the hell is crunchy? Welcome to Something Crunchy. Welcome to another special edition episode of Something Crunchy. I am Cullen Blake. With me as always, Blair and Tyler Dressel. Tonight, we have the privilege of interviewing Mr. Howard Bloom. Interviewing Howard Bloom is like interviewing five celebrities at the same time. He's authored such books as How I Accidentally Started the 60s, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll, The Genius of the Beast, and The God Problem. He has been called next in a lineage of seminal thinkers that include Newton, Darwin, Einstein, and Freud by Britain's Channel 4 TV. Gear Magazine called him the next Stephen Hawking. Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the ruler of Dubai, has named a racehorse after one of Howard's books. His second book, Global Brain, was the subject of a symposium given by the Secretary of Defense with participants from the State Department, the Energy Department, DARPA, IBM, and MIT. Mr. Bloom's writing is published all over the world, and he gives lectures on quantum physics, cosmology, evolutionary biology, probiotic evolution, political science, biopolitics, governance, economics, psychology, neuroscience, information science, and aerospace. Now you're thinking, what the hell is this man doing on Something Crunchy? You may have noticed in over 80 episodes, we haven't really explored evolutionary biology or quantum physics. Well, before he was labeled as having one of the strongest intellects on the planet, he founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry and helped build and sustain the careers of Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Queen, Kiss, Aerosmith, ACDC, Run DMC, Cool in the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire, Joan Jed, Peter Gabriel, Billy Idol, Billy Joel, plus at least 100 more. He helped his clients gross over $28 billion. That's more than the GDP of Oman or Luxembourg. Please welcome the one and only Howard Bloom. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you, Mr. Bloom? Uh, Absolutely wonderful, Blake. Uh, It's wonderful to be in your presence, to be in Blair's presence, to be in Tyler's presence. It's it's a joy. That is so sweet of you to say. How many push-ups have you done today? 1,250. I don't believe you. Yes! Unfortunately, in in the process of making the film, uh, the Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom, the 66-minute documentary that's won two festival awards. Oh, we're familiar. Um, the filmmakers came back to me and you said, well, you know, those aren't really push-ups. And I took that very badly because, I mean, I, my, my nose comes dangerously close, close to breaking itself on the floor <laughs> during these hundreds of whatever they are. So I got my gorgeous Asian house guest to sit at 8 a.m. in the morning on my floor and use her iPhone to shoot me, to video me, <laughs> and to see what I was doing. And I discovered much to my dismay, I wasn't doing push-ups. My body had invented all by itself without telling me a different kind of maneuver entirely. I was sort of vibrating in midair. <laughs> so, they counted for me. So, I mean, it works. Well, so now in the name of honesty, I call them vibrational planking. So I did 1,250 of them this morning, and, and I'm, I'm motivated to do that by the thought of I have two women I have loved in my life, and the first one of the love of my life, um, I, just thinking about her motivates me to get up to 1,250 when I really want to quit at 250. I love that you do that, by the way. Well, the the woman that is the love of my life, 
um, is 51 years old. She was 50 when I met her. I'm going to be 78 in a month. In my brain, what's motivating me to do 1,250 is I want to show her that I am young enough for her, even though she's gone, because we check in with each other on a monthly basis. She will never be out of my life, ever, and I will never be out of hers. What a wonderful connection. But I have a new girlfriend. That's very sweet, Mr. Bloom. And it is extremely challenging to write an interview for you. It would have been easier to write four or five separate interviews. We will get a little more cerebral in a bit, but being in an entertainment podcast, I do have an obligation to our listeners. And this means we do have to start with music and talk about publicity for some of the biggest names in the business. Uh, It was your job to make them into the biggest names in the business. Here's the story. Uh, I was a science nerd. I got hooked on microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 10. And then I got hooked on the, the ecstatic experience and trying to understand that with the tools of science when I was 12. And you would think, well, what in the world does this have to do with pop music? Well, I got an opportunity to go into popular culture, and that's a long story about how I did it. And in 1976, I founded what became the biggest PR firm in the music industry. And me, a science nerd who used to listen to Rachmaninoff, (laughs) Beethoven, Bartok, and Stravinsky, was all of a sudden working to either sustain or to build careers for people like Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, ZZ Top, uh, Shaka God. Khan. The biggest the list goes band on. in Worth, Texas. Um, <laughs> yes. Hold on. I mean, hold yeah. on. We got to sip on this a little bit. So you're you're throwing out some huge names right there. Oh, my gosh. Huge. We need to... We need to just dip into a couple of these. We actually, let's do this. We have, we have a game we like to play with actors when they come on, where we ask them to give a quick right. a quick anecdote or first thought when we bring up a role that they took on. If right. I, I'd like to do something similar with you, if you'll indulge us. I'd like to maybe just Absolutely. name off a couple of these clients. And if you don't mind, tell us either your first thought about them, a quick story, or perhaps something challenging about growing their brand. Well, Michael Jackson was Perfect. the most important encounter I've ever had in my life. I was with Michael's brothers. We were at a pool table in Marlon Jackson's pool house in Ensenada, um, California, you know, basically part of Hollywood and L.A. And um, and we were standing around the pool table looking at merchandising. And I was trying to explain to them that you, you try to do the most amazing stage show the world has ever seen. And your tour jackets and your T-shirts have to reflect that they yeah. have to be beyond belief. And I knew that Michael was coming to our meeting eventually. So I heard the screen door opening and I was not raised among other human beings. As I said, I was a science <laughs> nerd and my companions, my companions in my bedroom were lab rats, um, guinea pigs and guppies. Other kids wanted to have nothing to do with me. So I don't know normal human rituals. I never have. Um, but someone, when I was 19, had taught me that if there's somebody coming into a room that people want you to be, you walk over, you stick your hand out, and you say, hi, I'm Howard. And the other person will stick his hand out and say, hi, I'm fill in the blank. <laughs> um, and uh, I had never done this before. And I had read a pile of clippings, uh, four inches thick, on how Michael Jackson was a bubble baby, and if you tried to reach out a hand toward him, he would withdraw in fear. Oh, wow. And so, so when I heard the screen door open, I went over to the screen door. He was halfway through, one foot out the building, one foot in the building. 
I stuck out my hand for the first time in my life. I said, hi, I'm Howard for the first time in my life. Michael Jackson, who was supposed to be the bubble baby who would withdraw in fear, did not withdraw in fear at all. He put his hand in mine. We had a perfectly normal handshake. Um, it was a little lighter than, you know, it wasn't one of those handshakes designed to crush you and establish dominance at all. And he said, hi, I'm, ha I'm Michael. And I said, I've got a press release to read to you. And he said, okay, let's go upstairs. Now, a pool house is only big enough for one room on each floor, and it's only two stories high. So we went upstairs to the one room upstairs, and it was filled literally to the ceiling with amplifiers and keyboards. Oh, oh my so, God, so, cool. so Michael found a seat on one amplifier. I found a seat on another amplifier, and I started reading the press release to him. Now, I have taken writing deadly serious ever since I was 12 years old and in the introduction to a book that Einstein wrote, he sort of grabbed me by the pals and said, schmuck, listen up. And he said, to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory only seven men can, in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory, then explain it so clearly and deliciously that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Albert Einstein, one of my heroes, had given me, given me my marching orders. If I wanted to be an original scientific thinker, and that's all I can be, um, I had to be a writer, and not just any writer, a great writer. So I had been working on my writing since I was 12 years old. And I had edited a literary magazine at NYU that won two National Academy of Poets prizes and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Um, so, and all of that was in my press releases, but nobody knew it. Nobody <laughs> saw it. And as I was reading the first paragraph of the press release to Michael, he began to slump down in his seat and he said, oh, and I read the second paragraph and he slumped down a little further uh, on the app he was sitting on. And he said, oh, and at the third paragraph, the same thing happened. And when it, when I finished reading it, he said, man, that's beautiful. Did you write that? No one had ever seen the art in what I was doing. Wow. And I insisted on writing my own press releases, even though I was the head of the biggest PR firm in the industry. And no other person heading a PR firm did that. I did it because I could not rely on somebody else to write the vision of the soul of my clients that I saw. I had to make that come alive. And the only way I was going to do that was if I wrote the bios and if I wrote the press releases. Michael saw the art, the intense art, that press release. I bet that felt really nice to have that reciprocated because that was your job to bring out the soul and find out, you know, the, the art and what was special about each one of your clients. Absolutely. And then, then should I tell you what happened when we went downstairs? I love yeah. that Because it added to the experience. So there was a meeting coming up with an art director from CBS. And the brothers and Michael and I gathered at the pool table again. She came into the room. She was carrying five of the most gorgeous portfolios you've ever seen in your life. They were hand-tooled leather and hand-tooled cherry wood. Um, and she slid the first portfolio across the pool table at us. And Michael began to open it. And he only opened it far enough so that he could see one square inch of the illustration. And he went, oh, and his knees began to buckle, which I could feel because my knees were right up against his. 
And then he opened it another couple of inches. And he went, oh, 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 oh. You could see that Michael Jackson was seeing the infinite in these tiniest of things, that he was seeing things in this illustration that even the illustrator had never seen. It was amazing. I had never stood next to a person or even been in the room with a person who was having a full-scale aesthetic orgasm <laughs> before. Love and that's what was happening with Michael. And it was important because Michael knew that he had been given this gift of curiosity, of awe, of wonder, of surprise mm -hmm. by God. I'm an atheist, but it doesn't matter. The image will work. And because he had been given these powers by God, it was his obligation to bring awe, wonder, and surprise alive with the same kind of primal audacity um, in his kids. That was his, it wasn't a job because it was a joy, because it was a delight, because it was a sharing. Um, but that was his task on the face of this planet. So in those moments of all wonder and surprise over the press release, over the portfolios, you saw right down to the very base of his soul who Michael Jackson really was. And I had never, ever, I mean, remember, I worked with a lot of important people from Buzz Aldrin, the 11th president of India, but those are more recent, um, to all the people that I just told you. Michael was the closest to being something not, not beyond human, something you could call an angel treading the face of the earth that I had ever seen. Primal truth came alive in Michael in ways I never expected to see in one of my fellow human beings. And when I was 10, I was given by a book sitting in my lap, God knows where the book came from, two basic principles, the two rules of science. And those were what brought me into science. And those two rules were the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. There was Michael at my elbow, at my knee, experiencing truth in astonishing ways and seeing things right under his nose that no one had ever seen before. It was the closest to the experience of divinity that I have ever seen wow. because the divine is not some force exterior to us. It's something within us. It's a potential within us. It's an emotion within us. And Michael experienced that in ways that went 10 times beyond anything I ever thought humanly possible. Okay. How about a quick anecdote on Prince? What kind of impact Prince did he have on very, you? He was very, very different. First of all, I had been, I had, I had been taught to read all three trade magazines first thing on Monday morning, all the way through from cover to cover. And I did that. And I noticed on the black charts that there was an artist I'd never heard of. First rising on the charts, he never appeared on the pop charts, and then going platinum, which is extraordinary. How in the hell does an artist you've never heard of, who's only appearing on the black charts, go platinum? And then I got a call from California. I was working with Earth, Wind & Fire, saying that uh, Earth, Wind & Fire's manager has just gotten a new client, and he'd like you to work with him. And his name is Prince. Well, that was the unknown artist I had been tracking on the charts. 
So I was aware that this guy somehow, even though I'd never heard of him, was a phenomenon. And then I got calls from Warner Brothers, his record company in California. I got calls from a Princeton-level publicist who said, you will not be able to work with Prince. He can't do interviews. We set him up for two interviews out here. He didn't say a word to the first interviewer, and he tried to strangle the second interviewer. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I was developing a technique called secular shamanism. The goal was to get to the fucking goddamn soul. Yeah. of the person I was working with. And so I made certain uh, demands. And one of them was I get to see the artist in his own environment. First, I get to study the artist for a month to six weeks. Then I get to see the artist in his own environment with no managers, no wives, no assistants, nobody else in the room, but me and the artist. Um, And they gave me that permission. Now, the irony is that Prince was not he was rehearsing for his Dirty Mind store. And he was not rehearsing in Minneapolis. He was rehearsing in my hometown, Buffalo, New York, <laughs> in a theater I'd gone to at the age of 11 to see a movie. So I went to the theater. Um, I waited in the audience while the band finished its rehearsals. And then at about one o'clock in the morning, Prince and I went to find a room backstage where we could lock ourselves in. And I started to go through the story of Prince's life, looking for what I call passion points, imprinting moments, moments that influence who you are and what your passions are for the rest of your life. For example, I started by asking Prince a very simple question. When did you first become interested in music? Ridiculously simple, a stupid question, right? Yeah. And, and Prince said, well, I was five years old. My dad was a jazz musician. My mom took me to see him rehearse. Um, I went into an empty theater uh, filled with empty seats and at center stage, there was my dad at the piano with a spotlight on him and behind him were five of the most beautiful women I had ever seen in my life. And that was it. <laughs> that, and uh, this is what that, I want to do. <laughs> yeah. This was Prince's first imprinting moment. And so I went through his life methodically finding these passion points as they changed. And by the time we were finished, we started, as I said, around 1 or 2 a.m. By the time we were finished, it was daylight. And had I had any trouble interviewing Prince? Not at all. But it's because I had developed an interview technique over the years that made it as easy as pie for my artists to tell tell me the story of their lives and to find the the moments that mattered the most, the passion points, the imprinting moments. And so I went back to my office in in New York City in Manhattan on 55th Street between Lexington Avenue and 3rd Avenue. Um, And I arranged what Prince had told me so that it would tell a chronological story with those passion points as the highlights really built. But it was all Prince's words. And then I sent a transcript of it back to Prince saying, this is your script. When an interviewer walks into her, I'm going to set you up for eight interviews a day for three days in a row in New York and eight interviews a day for three days in a row in L.A. And when an interviewer walks in the room, it doesn't matter what question he asks. Usually you'll start with something really stupid, um, like how do you characterize your music? That's an unanswerable question. Yeah. And it's just plain dumb. It's no matter definitely what not a question, question an artist wants to answer. Yeah. And, and so 
no matter what question they start with, you give them a story and you have to realize something. When you go on stage, you do your hits for the millionth time, but you do them as if you have never done them before in your life. And that's your job with your story. You have to tell it to each interviewer as if you have never told it before in your life. You can't say, as I said to the previous guy, um, anything like that. I mean, you will be tempted to apologize like that. Forget it. Just tell the story. Um, and that interview will go home at night. And in those days, they were all men. And that interview will go home at night to his wife. And he will say, honey, I'm the greatest interviewer in the world. I asked this astonishing question. How do you characterize your music? And I got this amazing story out of this kid called Prince. <laughs> I am incredible. <laughs> but remember, that reporter much as I care about that person, because he is a person or she uh, later on, that person is a megaphone. That person is a microphone. Right. That person is your channel to reach your audience. And, and I would eventually, I hadn't quite derived this yet, but I eventually started to tell my clients, you don't owe just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. And it took me 20 years after I got sick and left the business and went back to my science full time, um, really sick. I was sick in a bed for 15 years and I was too weak to speak or have another person in the room with me for five. And it was a time to digest my period in this culture I had known nothing about, pop culture. And I realized after 20 years of thinking what I had meant by you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. If you and I are successful, if you have the raw material of superstardom, because we can't go anywhere if you don't have that raw material, um, if you come electric on stage, if you go out of body on stage, if a force bigger than you are that comes from the attention of the audience dances you on stage like a marionette, if you transfix that audience and channel that energy back to them in astonishing new ways, then you have the basic ingredients for superstardom. And if we are able to attain superstardom for you, kids will put a poster of you up on their walls when they are going through the age of 11, 12, and 13, which is a massive distorting transformation that we haven't, we haven't adequately helped kids handle. It's the transformation from childhood to sexuality and adulthood. And you will become, you know what a trellis is with a tomato plant? Yeah. Sure. If, so you will become the trellis on which these kids will grow. So your life is very important to these kids. The essence of who you are is very important because there's another thing aside from the story of your life, and it's your stance. It is the way you use your muscles on stage in front of an audience. When John Mellencamp raises his fist, it means one thing. When Joan Jett raises her fist, it means an entirely different thing, even though they're both acts of rebellion. Right. When Billy Idol raises his fist, it's a whole different experience. Yeah. Um, and I've never been able to explain entirely why, but that stance is another thing that's going to be formative. Um, for the kids who grow up on you. And it's going to help carry them through the rough, rough years of adolescence until they hit their 20s and or their late 20s and they finally find a mate and they finally find a purpose in life 
and they finally find a job of a, where people want them and need them, uh, and they begin to settle down. So your importance as a superstar is far, far more than you might think. So I used to tell my artists, I mean, when their managers came into my, well, I would tell them, you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your soul. Music, the music business is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic or downloads. Um, it is not about an exchange of money. It is about an exchange of raw human soul. Yeah. When you are on that stage and you feel the faces of the audience melting and you see their eyes widening Damn and right you feel is. their energy merging in a big collective blob like an amoeba and you feel that amoeba reach a pseudopod, a tunnel out to you and that energy comes pouring through you and you have an out-of-body experience and that energy goes to somewhere around your head is utterly transmogrified and channeled back down to them in a continuous feedback loop a reverberatory circuit, uh, that's your fucking soul coming alive yeah, in front of that audience. That's your soul and their souls merging. So this is not a business of pieces of plastic. This is a business of the exchange of raw human soul. And if you don't know that, you will be crippled um, so in your well career for the rest of your life. That translates into comedy and acting and your impact on your clients and the artists that you had were just more than obvious. Uh, and I wouldn't be a very good interviewer if I had Howard Bloom on for an hour and limited him to music the entire time. I'd like to discuss all of your books, just like I'd like to get into all your clients, but we don't have the whole night. Let's talk about how I accidentally started <laughs> the 60s. Um, right. So you left home... Looking for the beatniks to find acceptance, people started following right. you, and you hitchhiked your way into hippie culture. This is fascinating. So up our alley, tell us yeah, about the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And okay, days. Blake. Now you have you have to understand something. There was no hippie movement. The only movement that was being publicized, the beat movement, and since nobody, but they weren't, they didn't exist yet. This is 1962. This is before the 60s knew it was the 60s. So I, I went out to uh, Portland, Oregon to go to college at Reed College, which had the highest median SATs of any school in the country that year, higher than Caltech, MIT, and Harvard. Um, and I dropped out. In, I was in the top 10% of my class. Wow. I was one of the few kids who could handle the homework assignments in the math class, for example. One of the very wow. few kids, girls flocked around me for help with their homework. Of course, <laughs> once I'd finished giving them help with their homework, they fled just as much as they always had. Um, but at least I got, you know, an hour of something. Some fun attention. Social <laughs> contact, attention. <laughs> but, but, but I was looking for Zen Buddhist Satori. Um, I was looking for uh, mystic enlightenment. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't finding it in my homework at Reed College. And so I dropped out and I started hitchhiking and riding the rails. And I hitchhiked from uh, Seattle down to San Francisco oh because God. I knew exactly where the beatniks were. The beatniks <laughs> were in San Francisco. Yep. They were in North Beach. And they were crowded around a little bookstore called the City Lights Bookstore, which was owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the king of the beat poets. Wow. So I managed to get, I, I got a ride for seven hours with three murderers, which is a tale in itself, um, and discovered that even the worst of people have deep moral, moral characteristics and really have the power of caring, because these guys did for all the horrible things that they had done. They tried to save my soul, 
in the seven hour trip. And um, I finally got to North Beach and I went to the City Lights bookstore and there was no crowd of beatniks. In fact, <laughs> oh. the store was empty. It just, it just had one clerk behind a counter and he was busy reading a book. So I walked up and I said, where, where are the beatniks? And he didn't even look up from me. He <laughs> didn't they? even look up from his book. So I walked out looking bludgeoned. I walked out looking terribly confused because my whole purpose in life, finding the beatniks, was gone. And a man walked up to me. You discover in these situations just how astonishingly kind people can be and said, you look troubled about something. Can I help you? And I said, I said, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking for the beatniks. And, and he said, uh, well, and he rolled his eyes up into his head and he scratched his right brow and finally, and he thought deep and finally said, uh, have you tried Colorado? And that was just a little too diffuse a target for me. So I gave up and I hitchhiked back to Seattle and people, look, I was in pursuit of something. I was in pursuit of Zen Buddhist Satori. All I had were questions, but I was apparently uh, pursuing the questions with such intensity that people thought I had the answers. I didn't. Um, I just had, I guess, a method of pursuit. I didn't even have that. Um, just an intensity of pursuit. And they started dropping out of their jobs and uh, riding the rails. And we ended up in a big pink, uh, uh, big pink condemned house in Berkeley, California, three blocks away from the University of Berkeley campus. Um, and people started being attracted to us. But we had no name. The beatniks were gone. We had no name. And eventually I left the country and spent a year on a Marxist commune in Israel, a kibbutz. Um, to see if, indeed, a Marxist paradise would produce a whole new kind of human being. And I discovered in a year on this kibbutz, it didn't. It didn't change human (laughs) nature one bit. But when I came back to to North America, there were these articles on the cover of of Life magazine uh, about LSD, which we had taken in my days out on the West Coast, and... And it called the movement I had left behind me, the hippie movement. So, so I was there before the birth of the hippie movement. That's amazing. Um, and, one of, and there were probably other people like me, uh, Blake, um, other catalytic individuals um, who were responsible for this. But uh, apparently I was accidentally one of them. That is so that great. That is so fun oh. to hear. One little bit of connective tissue. The image that kept me going in my pursuit of Satori was the idea that there is a thin little flame like a pilot light in the stove inside of us. And it's the flame of our spontaneity. And one day when I was under LSD or peyote, I only did these things twice, but they were important exploratory missions. Mm -hmm. I, I saw that little blue spontaneous flame and how the ideas it produced were run through like a makeup department Um, and their clothes were changed and their way of expressing themselves were changed and they were tailored to fit the audience you were about to articulate them to. And I didn't like that. I wanted the flint in blue flame itself. Well, guess what I was discovering in my artists in the music industry, Prince, Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, et cetera. It was that thin blue pilot light, right? of the fucking goddamn human soul. Yes. That's what was taking them over on stage. What was its oxygen? 
the attention of the audience. And in the same way that that attention fed that thin blue flame in my stars, my stars thin blue flame caused a bonfire um, in the audience. And that bonfire in turn fed back to the thin blue flame within the artist and made it explode too. Well, even a couple of experiences on LSD can make a very big impact. I could tell you first. Oh, yes. Would you have written what you have and in the depth that you did if it wasn't for these experiences first? No, I had to. I mean, um, look, two poems um, fashioned my life when I was 16 years old. And one of them was the love song of Jail for Proof Rock by T.S. Eliot which basically said, if you have anything heroic to do in life, start it now. Don't start it tomorrow. Don't start it next week. Start it now. Because if you put it off till tomorrow and you put it off until next week, you'll be putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until you finally wake up one day and realize you no longer have the life force to achieve. That thing, which you felt would be the ultimate expression of you. Start now. And the second poem was called Renaissance by Edna St. Vincent Millay. And in essence, to me, it said, have every adventure in the extremes of human emotion that you can. Because until you can understand via empathy the sufferings of every kind of person on this planet and the joys, she did not say the joys, the joys are also very important. You cannot see the infinite and the tiniest of things. And seeing the infinite and the tiniest of things is the goal. She said, the earth stands out on either side, no wider than the heart is wide. Above the earth, there stands the sky, uh, no higher than the soul is high. In other words, you can see infinity if you experience enough of the, in the extremes of human adventure. And I have been adventuring ever since then to the best of my limited abilities. I love that you quoted some poetry for us. Oh, it was like, it hit home too, because I feel like we, it's like such a great message to send to everybody to like live life that way. It's amazing how impactful words can be. I'll give you an example taken from the grand unified theory of Howard Bloom. It's a 66 minute documentary available on Amazon Prime. What all three of us took from that, especially me personally, when you said all the cosmos really wants from us is to live the most shocking lives we can, that blew my top off. Amazing. That gave me like comfort in decisions I have made in my life, whether they were right or wrong. I can't tell you the impact that that had on me. Amazing. We had like a whole conversation from that and it was wonderful. Well, that's, you're making me glow. I'm sitting here glowing. Um, So... Uh, the, the, the bottom line of the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, which really is a grand unified theory. I've been trying to boil it down. Now it's about nine pages. Um, so that's still too big. But um, the basic message is that this cosmos is a search engine constantly extending new antennae into possibility space, sure. into the impossible things that could be. And you and I are fingertips of that exploration process. You know, if if you've ever dropped a contact lens into a shag rug, in order to find it, you have to spread out all five fingers and run your fingers through the shag rug. Well, you and I are fingertips of the universe, not trying to find her contact lens, trying to find her next 
absolutely stunning impossibility because those are things the cosmos pulls off all the time. But she can only pull them off through probes like you and me. So if we go to the extremes of adventure, we are not just doing something on behalf of ourselves, although we are. We are enriching ourselves tremendously. Um, we are exploring new territory to expand the envelope of perception of humankind and also to expand the realm of possibility of the cosmos herself. I mean, an example. This is a strange example. Yes. When I was... Um, uh, when I was asked to found a public and artist relations department, um, I had never done this. I had never done PR, but I was, at, was asked to found the public and artist relations department for Gulf and Western's 14 record companies. And 12 of the record companies were jokes. Uh, two of them were very serious, and that's where I put all my time. But one day, the talent scout for one of the companies that was a joke, anybody they signed was going to be anonymous for the rest of his life, um, came into my office all excited because he had found this guitar player named Bill Chinnick. And Bill Chinnick was going to be playing in New York City. So I went to see Bill Chinnick play, and then I sat down with Bill, and I got the story of his life. And Bill told me this. When I was a little kid, I loved Les Paul. So in those days, we had spindles, and you could put six records on a spindle. So he just filled his spindle with Les Paul records, and he sat there with his guitar year after year after year, trying to equal the guitar playing of Les Paul. And finally, he was able to do it. Well, one day, he was playing at a little club in New Jersey. And there was a little old man sitting in the back of the audience. And when all the rest of the audience left, the little old man was still sitting there. And he got up and he came down to the foot of the stage. And he said, son, how did you do that? And Bill said, well, sir, I grew up listening to Les Paul records and trying to do what Les Paul did. And the little old man said, son, I am Les Paul. What? Don't, don't you realize I invented multi-tracking? In other words, <laughs> Bill Chinnick had learned to play like eight Les Paul. Oh my God. And a little old man said, Son, could you come to me with my home and go down to my den with me and do that what? again? So, this is wow. how the expansion of the envelope of human possibility happens. And every time we expand the envelope of human possibility, we're extending the audience uh, the, or the, the ambit just a little bit of the realm of the cosmos possibilities because we're making things happen that have never happened before in the history of this universe and with michael jackson in the same way that bill chinnick um was inspired by les paul i want as many people as possible to understand michael jackson which i tried my best to get across on a visceral level in the book einstein michael jackson and me so you can feel him the way that i felt him because we all need to move into the level of all wonder and surprise that Michael experienced every day. Um, in the same, once upon a time in 1954, sports physiologists knew one thing with absolute certainty. Humans were not built to ever break the four minute mile. And a guy named Roger Bannister was a medical student in England and a medical student friend of his started analyzing every move that Roger Bannister made when he was running to eliminate every tiny little move that could waste energy. And finally, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. 
Now, Roger Banasee broke the, or, or opened new boundaries of human possibility. Since then, every major internationally competitive runner automatically breaks the four-minute mile. 800, 1,800 people so far have been recorded as breaking uh, the four-minute mile. And if Michael Jackson can become the kind of standard for us normal human beings that Roger Bannister became for runners, we can expand the realm of what we see on our astonished by in ways that will stun us and in ways that will benefit our fellow human beings and in ways that expand the boundaries of the cosmos very possibilities. You mentioned follow your curiosities, and that is just like yeah. one of my favorite things. And I think that's, again, something that just everyone should always remember. Be curious, be spontaneous, be shocking. Yes. And in 2001, I created a field called Omnology. And Omnology is designed for this purpose. You're in your sophomore year of college. Um, you are interested in art, art history. You're interested in neuroscience. And you're interested in cinema. And your dad sits you down and says, son or daughter, listen up. You're interested in art history, you're interested in neuroscience, you're interested in cinema, you gotta make up your mind. Are you gonna become an art historian, a neuroscientist, or a filmmaker? And until you make up your mind, you're nobody. And omnology is there so that you can lift your middle finger at that and say, no, no, I'm an omnologist. I have three different interests. I will follow them for as long as they pique my curiosity and move my passions. And if new curiosities come along, I will follow those too. And when my friends hit the age of 40 and wonder why in the world they're on planet Earth, and if their women plan elaborate divorces so they can find out who they really are, and if their men buy little red sports cars to pick up blondes and cheat on their wives because they have no idea of why they are on this planet. I will just be coming back from the wilderness of my three curiosities with answers of kind nobody has ever imagined before. And while my friends will feel they are at the end of their lives, I will know I am at the very beginning of mine. Um, so omnology is there for people who want to take a whole bunch of specializations, follow them and use them as pixels in a big picture, in a grand landscape. Um, in a sweeping landscape of the cosmos. Damn, that's powerful, Mr. Bloom. I know. I love your beautiful brain. Can you tell me about your <laughs> meditative process? Do you have one that you've adopted yourself? No, I hate meditation. I really? hate meditation. I loathe relaxation. I cannot <laughs> handle relaxation. If I'm not doing three things at once, um, I am not happy. Uh, and in fact, I'm doing, I was doing 15 things at once, which is just about right for me. And then a bunch of people saw the film, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom, and came to me and said, I, you talked about the Howard Bloom Institute. I want to be part of it. So I put them all together, and now they're a Howard Bloom Institute. And that's yes. the 16th project. And 16 projects is just a tiny little bit more than I can handle. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, I do my uh, I do my email, which is basically my homework every day um, with my girlfriend on the phone and with Spotify running. And if I didn't have all that going while I was doing my email, I don't know how I could stand doing my email. It would just drive me crazy. 
So I, I want to turn you loose on really any subject you're in the mood to talk about. You have you go through these interviews all the time. I'm sure you get the same questions over and over. You really do have a gift of being able to present new ways of looking at things, and we'd be appreciative for more knowledge on any topic you find fitting or whatever you're in the mood to talk about. Well, I just there's something to know. I've been an outcast all my life, a total outcast. Other people haven't wanted to have anything to do with me. When I was eight, they started something new, though they couldn't stand having me as a member of any of their groups. If I headed the group or if I founded the group, they were very happy to join it. Ain't that weird? Um, <laughs> and one day, and, and one day, I mean, I'm running four groups in space alone. One group that Buzz Aldrin conned me into starting 15 years ago, it's called the Space Development Steering Committee. Another group that includes uh, the former governor of New York State, David Patterson, who, like me, is a Democrat. Newt Gingrich, who obviously is not a Democrat. Um, Robert Walker, a Republican who used to head the House Science Committee. And Steve Quast, a three-star general. That's my basic team. And I'm heading, can you imagine that? I'm no, heading the group. I can't. I mean, wow. Uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, I put together Buzz Aldrin and the 11th president of India, um, uh, Dr. APJ Kalam on the phone. And, and Kalam was a superstar in all of South Asia um, because he was he had a reputation as being the only honest politician in the history of Indian politics. And, um, and he was a rocket scientist. He had put together India's space program. So, and I put them together in a project to harvest solar energy in space and to transmit it to earth using the same kind of harmless waves that your cell phone uses. And so I've been running these groups and, and once upon a time I was at a rock concert for one of my clients and I had the usual all access pass and I'd like to check out the audience from every angle. So I went down to the first 15 rows where everybody's on their feet for the whole concert. And the artist was asking us to clap along. So I clapped along, along with everybody on either side of me. And then I noticed there was a problem. When other people's hands were meeting, mine were parting. And when mine were parting, other people's hands were meeting. Um, I could not... I could not fit into a normal human rhythm. I apparently am not built to fit in to a normal human rhythm. And that was agonizing as hell for decade after decade. But guess what it turned out to be? My biggest advantage. So your disabilities can prove to be your capabilities. Title of your next book. <laughs> <laughs> So, that, I mean, that's it, you know, and, and I'm Jewish. My parents didn't go to temple very often. They only went when a friend's son was being bar mitzvahed or a friend's daughter was being married. And, and sitting in a synagogue is horrible. I mean, it's a narrow wooden pew. You can't really get up and leave uh, without asking 15 people to re with, retract their knees so you can somehow <laughs> squeeze past them. And there's this bunch of books on the pew in front of you. There's a bookshelf, basically. And nobody ever reads the books, except when the rabbi says, stand up and recite these passages. Um, well, it turns out there's two books. One is the prayer book, which is the only one that anybody's opening, because it has the prayers you're supposed to recite along with the rabbi. And there's another book. And guess what it is? It's 
the Torah. It's the Old Testament of the Bible. So I got so bored, I started reading that. And I read it, I thought I read it from cover to cover seven times. And usually when I have these memories and think, oh no, that can't be for real, and go check on whatever evidence there is, I discover it's for real, um, <laughs> that this was really, really happening. And so we come out of a tradition of people who go out into the desert commune with whatever it is that they find to be divine, and then come back with messages to save their people. And that is a tradition we have to take seriously. All of these wanderings, all of these adventures that ended St. Vincent Millay was preaching are necessary parts of having a message of some importance to lift your people to the next step. It's the population of the world, to the best of our ability, putting Buzz Aldrin together on Skype with um, APJ Kalam, the 11th president of India, that's worldwide. When Academia Edu sends me the report about what people are reading my works, way up there on the list are Kenya and South Africa and the Philippines. When Charlie Hoxie, the three-time Emmy winner who made the Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom, the 66-minute film, I asked him why you chose to make a film about me. And uh, he said, because you've had an influence worldwide. And now looking at these academia and you reports, I'm suddenly realizing he wasn't kidding around. Um, I'm getting hit. For for 25 years, I've been getting hits from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. I'm a Zionist atheist Jew, for God's sake. (laughs) Why would they want to have anything to do with me? So why would they want to have anything to do with me in Dubai, where the sheik who runs Dubai has named a racehorse after one of my books, where the head of the country's sovereign real estate operation, a $33 billion company that built the world's tallest building and it has holdings in 15 different countries, went in front of the Arabian Business and Economic Forum and said, there is a book I particularly resonate with. Um, It contains the future of Dubai and proceeded to read a passage from my book, The Genius of the Beast, The Radical Revision of Capitalism. This stuff is real. This stuff is happening. It was hard for me to absorb for a long time. But uh, I don't even know which part of the Bible talks about being a lamp unto the people. And the, But there's another very important statement in Proverbs. And remember, I'm an atheist, but these things are true. Um, and it is without a vision of people shall perish. And right now, Western civilization is operating on dystopian visions, visions that it has destroyed the world, that it has raped Mother Nature, um, that all that is green is about to disappear if we don't go into action and get rid of all of our technologies, basically. That message is counter. It's a counter message. It's a horrible message. It is our job to build utopias. Nature doesn't give us gardens of Eden. Nature gives us the obligation of creating gardens of Eden. And with each generation, she gives us new tools with which to do it, new technological tools and new perceptual tools. And it is our job as those who wander in the desert and come back with truths and save our people to counter the dystopian message with a utopian message. And the base of the utopian message is that Every system in the world that's ever tried to call on our um, idealism has said it was a system that would lift the poor and the oppressed. Of all the systems in the world, the Chinese system, the Islamic system, 
um, the Russian system. Which is the system that has done the most to lift the poor and the oppressed? Well, here is the evidence. You tell me what the answer is. If you've been born in 1850 in the Western world, your chances, uh, your life expectancy would have been 38.5 years. If you've been born in 2000, your life expectancy would have been 78.5 years. You would, we would, we added, the Western system added 40 years to the human lifespan, more than doubled the human lifespan. If you'd given kids, just a hundred kids who've allegedly been flattened and deadened by Facebook and social media and cell phones, if you gave them an IQ test, a Stanford Binet IQ test from 1916, when that test was first administered, they would register having an average IQ of marginal genius, an average IQ of 30, 135. We have added 35 points to the average IQ since 1916, just a little over 100 years ago. If you've been born either in 1650 in the West or in one of those lovely indigenous tribes that lives in harmony with nature and at peace with its fellow man, your odds of dying a violent death at the hands of a fellow human being would have been 10 times what they are today. We have increased the peace in the world, despite our bloody world wars, by a factor of 10. And if you've been the poorest paid worker in London in 2000, you would have earned what an entire tenement full of the poorest paid workers um, in England in 1850 earned. Tell me another system that has produced these material miracles. You can't because no other system has. China is doing it now, lifting a billion people out of poverty by aping the Western system by imitating the Western system, even though it's under strict one-party control. Well, here's the deal. If our great-great-grandparents could give us an extra 40 years of life, then we owe an extra 40 years of life to our Mm great-great-grandkids. If our great-great-grandparents could increase the lowest-paid worker's wage by a factor of seven, we owe another factor of seven to our great-grandchildren, not $15 an hour, $115 an hour. If our great great grandparents could increase peace in the world by a factor of 10, we owe our great grandchildren peace that expands by at least another factor of 10. And if our great great grandparents have given us an extra 35 IQ points, we owe at least an extra 35 IQ points um, to our great great grandkids down the line. And if we fail in those missions, we are failing our destiny and we are failing the humans who come after us. We are utterly failing them. So we have to look a nation that looks up, goes up a nation that looks down, goes down. We have to look up to see not only what we have accomplished, but how we can accomplish far, far more. And unless we do that, we are killing our very possibilities. We are killing the essence of the human collective soul. God, that's brilliant. So well said, Mr. Bloom. Yeah. And I could talk to you for the rest of the night. I know. We could get into pseudoscience, quantum physics, theory, entropy. I really can get into so many other topics with you. But we promised that we would be respectful of your time. We know that you have a show to watch. Uh, The Grand Unified Theory of Howard Bloom is available on Amazon Prime. It is a fantastic watch. Yes. Thank you so, so, so much for coming and joining us. You you, are so warm and so kind, and that is so rare to get from... uh, Amanda is so brilliant. It really was so great to talk to you. Thank you. Blake, Blair, Tyler, 
a huge thanks. You're, you've energized me. It was a sincere pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. You too. You Thank too. you so Thank much. You it was so a pleasure. Hopefully we can talk again sometime. That would be nice. That would be wonderful. Have a wonderful night. Thank you again, Mr. Bloom. Okay. Thanks, Blake. Just a little bit of crunching with a genius and a music industry legend. We could have had him on 10 more times and still not begin to scratch the surface on what he has to teach us. His books are incredible. He is a superhuman, and that's the only way to describe him. Uh, We have some more big names on deck and some really cool episodes coming up. Don't forget the deadline to enter for the 8080 Dream Car giveaway number 44 for a McLaren 600 LT plus $60,000 in cash is coming up. It would be wise to take advantage of that. Check it out. It's a great deal. So is visiting somethingcrunchy.com where you will find every episode, our links for social media, and the almighty Crunch Store where you will find all kinds of crunchy gear showing that you are a proud citizen of Crunch Nation. If your shots are up to date and you want to join the comedy orgy that is the Something Crunchy Facebook group, (laughs) grab some rubber gloves and come join us. We are having a good time in there. (laughs) This has been another episode of Something Crunchy. And as always, don't ever forget to live your crunchiest life and be crunchy to one another. Don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, and all that crunchy good shit. Thank you for listening. That's your fucking soul coming alive. The fucking goddamn human soul.